Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Tobias. I'm one of those uh, freshly installed associate pastors. <clears throat> Doesn't quite feel different yet. <laughs> um, this morning, uh, we're in the middle of a series on Philippians. And um, <clears throat> last week, we looked all the way through verse 26. And we're going to continue in this morning with verses 27 through 30. So take a moment there and uh, turn uh, in your copy of God's Word to Philippians 1, 27 through 30. And let's go ahead and read uh, God's Word. Friends, this is uh, His holy and inspired and infallible Word. So let's give it our careful attention. He says this, <clears throat> Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we uh, bow before you. We are humbled uh, by your uh, kindness to uh, people who, apart from your grace, would not uh, serve you. But Lord, you in your infinite wisdom have showered grace upon grace on us, and we are so very thankful. Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of your servant Paul so long ago, and we thank you for his words. Thank you, Lord, uh, that you have preserved them, and we ask now that you will teach us by them, uh, that your Holy Spirit will open our eyes to what you would have us see, open our ears to what you would have us hear, uh, give us a fuller sense of who you are and what you've done and what you call us to. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, so uh, if you scan back over that passage, uh, perhaps as you heard it for the first time, uh, I imagine uh, you were struck by how abrupt it is. Uh, if you uh, are simply coming back to Philippians from last week, um, you see here with his opening statement, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It seems to come a bit out of nowhere. Paul has begun this letter with a benediction and with thanksgiving for the Philippians' participation in uh, the work of the gospel. He has praised them for their defense of the faith and for their proclamation of the gospel. 
And in verse 12, we saw that Paul, after giving thanks, he began to tell the Philippians uh, things about himself, what he had been suffering, his imprisonment, the things that he had been struggling with, uh, that he had in fact been contemplating life or death. But all of that is now left behind in this only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He is concerned to address the things about the Philippians. And I think this is coming from an overflow of his pastoral heart. You see, in verse 8, he said, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And he had taken some responsibility for their growth in the faith. We see that in verse 25. And yet I think Paul has had a sober realization as he uh, is in prison. You know, he is a fallible human being. And although he had just in verse 26 said, I am confident that I will be able to be with you, Philippians, uh, one day, he can't be certain. And friends, the future was as uncertain for Paul as it was as it is for you and I. And I think he sees that time is short. After all, the Lord is returning. He's made mention of this already in verses 7 and 10. And that's going to be a day of judgment. And he himself is facing potential judgment. He's in prison. And while he is confident of his acquittal, he cannot be certain. And he also knows that the Philippians are facing persecution from those outside the church. And so out of the overflow of this pastor's heart, he writes to encourage them. But I don't think he just writes to encourage them, you know, with this kind of abruptness of the language and some of the language he uses in verses 27 through 30. It's almost like he dons the mantle of a, of a field commander in battle. And it reminds me of, uh, of that famous speech in Henry, Henry V, Henry V, the St. Crispian's Day speech. This is where we get the, the title Band of Brothers. You remember that. Uh, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. When Henry is trying to rouse the English uh, to battle against the French. And I think Paul is kind of donning that mantle here. And, you know, I think we see that right from the beginning. If we look again at verse 27 and see how it opens, it opens abruptly. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that word only there just kind of hits us there. And uh, his point is, in every circumstance... And I like the way the NIV has translated it. It says, whatever happens. That's how, he, that's how they open up this, this, this verse. Whatever happens. And on the heels of what we saw in verses 18 through 26, I think Paul's opening statement here is an invitation for the Philippians to reflect on their present circumstances and compare them to what Paul had experienced and how he experienced it in the previous verses. You see, we need to remember that Paul himself, at this very moment, is suffering persecution. He's in prison. 
And yet, through it all, as we saw last week, he lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, we saw that he's rejoicing in his sufferings, confident of the Lord's deliverance, and confident that the Lord would be honored in his life. It's an incredible example. And so I think here, right from the get-go, he is urging the Philippians to learn what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel from his example. So what does it mean? How were they to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, again, looking at that phrase there, let your manner of life, uh, the, I, think the, I think the meaning of that is a bit obscured in our English translations. We hear that phrase. We're used to hearing that phrase common enough. It's common enough in Paul. Uh, he, you, know, you can hear him say, uh, walk in a manner worthy. He says this uh, in Ephesians 4, 1 Thessalonians. But did you notice it's always walk in a manner? And that's not insignificant. You see, Paul is using a different word there. Uh, that's his common way of talking about this. But here, as he addresses the Philippians, he uses a different word. He uses a rare word. It's only used twice in the entire New Testament, here and in Acts 23. And in both instances, it's, a me its meaning is essentially this. It's a political word. His meaning is essentially publicly conduct yourselves. Exercise your citizenship. Live as a member of whatever commonwealth. That's what it means. And so here, right at the beginning of this passage, he's, he's addressing the Philippians, and it, it, he's saying, exercise your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love that he does this. You see, because this is targeted to uh, speak directly at the heart of the Philippian Christians. You see, citizenship was something uh, dear to them. Philippi had been granted Roman colonial status after the Battle of Philippi. Um, and all of, its citizen, all of its inhabitants were considered Roman citizens. Philippi was, in a sense, Rome in miniature. And all of the citizens were afforded those great benefits, all of them that came to, Ro to uh, Roman citizens. For example, they were free from scourging, and they could appeal to Caesar. And I mention that only because Paul, we see Paul making this appeal in Acts 22. And it seems likely that the Philippian Christians were facing persecution from fellow Philippian citizens who were unbelievers who thought that devotion to this Jesus as a God was incompatible, incompatible with citizenship in Philippi, a Roman colony. And I won't look at it now, but you can look to a similar situation that Paul experienced in Philippi in Acts 16. It's very it's striking uh, how that I think may, maybe informs us here. But I think Paul's exhortation here is uh, remarkable. Uh, 
You see, he doesn't say, Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of Philippi or Rome. Instead, he says, only let your manner of life, only exercise your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And friends, on the heels of what we have just read in verses 18 through 26, where we read that Paul is eager to see them, and now he has this abrupt saying, his earnestness here, it's palpable. It's as if he's saying to the Philippians, yes, I plan to come see you. That is my heart's desire. But what if God has other plans? Even so, you must carry on and live your lives in light of the gospel as citizens of God's commonwealth, as subjects of the great king. This is the one and only thing. This is your highest calling. So how were they supposed to do that, particularly in the midst of persecution? Friends, how are you and I supposed to do that? Well, Paul mentions a few things as he goes on. And the first thing that he says is that we as Christians are called to present a united front in the midst of battle. Notice what he says in the second half of verse 27. Stand firm in one spirit and with one mind strive side by side. Friends, this is military language. And the picture that I have in my mind is uh, of uh, a troop of Roman soldiers. And I have in my mind particularly that illustration of their, their tortoise formation, where they, if you've ever seen it, where they have their shields, their, their shoulders, they're just side by side, tightly knit together, shields up, shields overhead. It's an impregnable formation. I think that is kind of the picture that he has for you and me. And as he paints this picture, he is reminding the Philippians that the fight cannot be reduced to an individualistic exercise. It's not an individual's fight. Second, Paul calls us to face opposition with courage, without fear. And friends, this doesn't mean that we're never going to be afraid. This is a natural human emotion. And in fact, Paul himself, uh, we read in Acts 18, when he was preaching in Corinth, he experienced fear. And yet the Lord spoke to him in, an, in a vision, and he trusted the Lord. Uh, and, uh, and he was delivered from that fear. Uh, this, this doesn't mean that we're not going to experience that. Instead, I think what Paul's getting at is he's, he's pushing us to face opposition, not trusting in our own strength and courage. Uh, friends, those things will waver. But instead, trusting in the Lord's strength. After all, he says in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us. He's driving that home. Friends, when we do this, when we present a united front 
standing firm against attack in the strength of the Lord. Paul says in verse 28 that two things will follow. He says, first, our perseverance will serve as an unmistakable sign of our enemy's ultimate destruction. And second, it will serve to give us assurance of our salvation. And friends, in light of the coming day of the Lord, what he has in mind is final judgment and consummate salvation. And that, that uh, word there about a sign of destruction, I think is interesting, and uh, we ought to talk about that for a moment. The, the ESV says it'll be a sign of destruction to them. And the sense is perhaps that they are aware of their coming destruction. And I want to talk about that in a moment. But it also, you could take it as a sign with regard to them. In other words, it's a sign to you and me. And um, the Apostle Paul makes a similar comment in 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 and 10. Uh, essentially, that our suffering is evidence to us of both our salvation and the coming destruction that the Lord will deliver on his enemies. But I don't want to discount the possibility that our firm stance, our united front, will be powerfully used by the Lord to give evildoers, those who do not believe in the Lord, a picture of their coming destruction and therefore conviction of sin and that he will not in some way use that to draw them to himself. I'm reminded of the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. You remember Paul and Silas are in jail and there's a great earthquake and the doors open, shackles fall off and the jailer starts to freak out. He's starting to get nervous for himself and he runs and he, he looks in and Paul assures him, we're still here. And taking it all in, I think the jailer was astounded that they were still there. Who on earth would have remained in jail if the doors had been open? Their, the, the way they handled themselves in imprisonment astounded him. And what's interesting is that he doesn't ask, hey, Paul, uh, how can you help me kind of cover this up? What he says in Acts 16 is this, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's exactly what happens. Friends, our robust, unified stance in the midst of uh, opposition might be used by the Lord to convict those of sin and draw, them, uh, and draw people to himself. And you know, Paul's certainty that the Lord will produce these signs stems from the fact that ultimately he believes God is in control of the entire situation. Uh, notice again what he says at the end of verse 28. He says, and that from God. The, the sign of destruction 
and of your salvation and that from God. And if you're, if you're wondering, uh, as it reads in our translation, if you're wondering, well, I think maybe that just means the salvation is from the Lord. It's grammatically impossible, just so you know. It's, uh, it, it, they, they don't, the words don't, in terms of gender, match up. What Paul has in mind here is the entire thing. The conflict, the destruction, the perseverance, and the salvation, that is from God. Friends, what an encouragement. Nothing that the Philippians could experience, nothing that you or I can experience, is outside the bounds of our Heavenly Father's superintendence. But you know, more than being in his control, these things are also his gift to us. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Brothers and sisters, we know and often affirm that our faith is a gift. But how often do we reflect on the fact that our suffering, rather than being merely the inevitable result of the fall, or worse, a sign of the Lord's forgetfulness or abandonment, these things are in fact a precious gift of the Lord. Let me be clear here. I'm not saying that suffering in and of itself is a gift. Wickedness is not from the Lord. It's evil and God will punish evildoers. Sickness and pain, sadness and death, these things will be done away with for God's people when he returns again in glory. But y'all, the Lord in his infinite wisdom, he uses the suffering we endure in his name to refine us and to give us hope that he is, in fact, graciously at work in our lives. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may, be, may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's an amazing thought to know that the Lord is holding us in the palm of his hand, and that he is indeed even in control when we are suffering. What other hope do we have? And I'm reminded of what we sang earlier uh, in the song, Through the Precious Blood. It's in this first stanza again. It's in your bulletin. You have ordained every breath we take in pleasure or pain. There is no mistake, gladness and grief, both are in your hands and sufferings brief carry out your plan and our fleeting sorrows will yield an endless prize. Brothers and sisters, I think that Paul's admonition in these verses is exactly what we need to hear right now. As those who claim the name of Christ, like the Philippians, we too are citizens of heaven. 
like Abraham who looked forward to that heavenly home, you and I live in the hope of one day seeing, as John says in Revelation 21, that holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Friends, living in the here and now, it's pretty easy for us to be distracted from this high calling, isn't it? After all, it's really our American citizenship that's front and center right now, right? Many of us recently exercised our civic right to vote in the presidential race. And our eyes are now fixed on how things are going to play out under a new presidential administration. Friends, like the Philippians, we too need to be reminded that no matter how great and dear the benefits provided to us are through our earthly citizenship as Americans, no matter how strong the pressures are to conform to society's expectations for us, our primary allegiance is and must always be to the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us to live in a manner worthy of his gospel. And you know, I wonder too if a passage like this uh, can be lost on us as American Christians. After all, we currently enjoy an incredible amount of religious protection. All it, all it takes is to talk to someone from another country who's, who's emerged out of severe persecution to get a sense of this. And so I imagine that many of us in this room are thinking, well, are any of us really suffering because of our faith? And don't hear what I'm not saying. I think, I think there is plenty of suffering for the faith here in the United States. But I also think we need to be careful both to put it in perspective and not to reduce what Paul's talking about here to those direct hostile attacks that we might experience. And I found the words of a New Testament scholar, Moises Silva, particularly insightful uh, when talking about this. Listen to what he says. He says, for the person whose life is committed in its totality to the service of Christ, every affliction and every frustration becomes an obstacle to fulfilling the goal of serving Christ. You hear that? But friends, you know, even if we are not immediately experiencing suffering and persecution, I think Paul's ending words in verse 30 are a reminder to us that God's people are engaged in this fight together all the time and across boundaries. After all, Paul is writing this to the Philippians separated by miles, and yet he says that they're engaged in the same conflict. And so you and I need to hear this as an exhortation to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters throughout the world, praying for their steadfast faithfulness and deliverance in the midst of persecution. 
brothers and sisters, as those who seek to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, let us take Paul's words here to heart. Let us follow his example, trusting that the Lord is graciously at work in all things. For he says in Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. Let's pray. O gracious and mighty God, as we, your people, face persecution now in the future, as we suffer for your name's sake, Lord, we ask now that you will give us strength through through your spirit. We ask that you will unite us as your body, that we might stand firm Uh, against a hostile world. Oh, Father, we ask that we will do this not in our own strength, but in the strength that you provide, knowing uh, that you are the one who is going to work all things, all things for our good and your glory. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.